People who uh, take the Bible seriously, they come to know the mind of God and the ways of God, and they understand the world around them even when things are difficult and disturbing. People who study the Bible and believe the Bible, meditate on the Bible, they tend to see a deeper significance in common things around the world. And they tend to have a deeper purpose, and they tend to have higher joy than those who don't. The Bible has an orienting function in our lives and in our families. The Bible has an orienting function in our lives, in our souls, in our families. It helps us keep our balance. It helps us know our place. It helps us deal with our past. It helps us prepare for our future. It tends to move us from despair to hope, from aimlessness to purpose, from emptiness to fulfillment. It it helps us understand the great evil around us and assures us of the limits of that evil. Now, this passage that we study today has that orienting effect on the faithful, and it has had that orienting effect on the faithful for many centuries. I know what you're thinking when David was reading that. You're like, I'm glad I'm not. I don't have to explain that this morning. Um, Buckle your seatbelt. What do they tell you when you're going to ride the latest and the greatest most petrifying ride at Cedar Point. They say, fasten your seatbelts. Hopefully nobody throws up today. You're in for a ride this morning through the history of time from Daniel to the return of Christ. And you're going to need a copy of the Bible open in your lap to Daniel chapter 8. So open your Bible to Daniel chapter 8. Just open it up in your lap. We're going to go through this passage, and I'll tell you what I, how I'm going to do what I'm going to do to be a help to you, or scroll to that place on your screen. Here's a technique I want to use. I borrowed it from how the Bible deals with this narrative here of these events that happen. I'm going to repeat myself. In the text, you notice that what happens is essentially repeated twice. If you were listening carefully, you notice that here's the vision that Daniel had, And then here's the interpretation given by the angel Gabriel. So essentially, the narrative of what happened is spoken two times in Daniel chapter 8. It may confuse you what happened with the goats and the rams and the horns and all of that. But obviously, something is happening involving these nations of Medo-Persia and Greece, as it says in verse 121-22. And it's, it's repeated in the interpretation from verses 15 to the end. And then you have Daniel's reaction. So I'm going to borrow that technique the Bible uses. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Please don't leave. Five times. Five times. I'm a professional. Relax. I can do this thing. Uh, so here, five times. So the passage that we'll study today, here's the synopsis. The passage that we study today has many specific prophetic details that are fulfilled in history and can be easily verified by anybody with a computer or with a decent library with a couple books, like the history of Josephus or the intertestamental uh, extra-biblical books of uh, the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, the ascendance of Greece after the decline of Babylon, the ascendance of Greece, of Medo-Persia, and then of Greece, as a world empire, the exploits of Alexander the Great, the dark history of Antiochus Epiphanes, many accurate details about these well 
documented historic facts, events, are given here in this text in Daniel in chapter 8, in a vision given to Daniel, listen, hundreds of years before they happen. This is amazing. In the, this is a stounding proof of the accuracy and the reliability and the divine origin of the Bible that you hold in your lap. This it should make our hearts beat fast, inspire our confidence. The chapters that we're entering now should sober us as we see the origin of the great evil that drives much of what is happening in the world around us. And the record here gives an account and a reason for the presence of this great evil and the ongoing hatred or antipathy toward the Jewish people through the centuries and the ultimate triumph of God and his eternal kingdom. All of that is clearly lined out in the events that are recorded in this amazing chapter of the Bible. It's sobering, and it's sad in places, and it should deepen our resolve to put our trust in Jesus and the Bible and place our hope and investments in the kingdom that will never end. Now, so let me say the same thing in a little different way. Today's account we just read tells of the rise of Medo-Persia of Greece, of Alexander the Great, of Antiochus' defilement of the temple and its restoration, and it foreshadows the Antichrist. I'm going to prove that at the end of time. So when we read it, we will see that it is a prophecy which is very precise. Every word, every phrase in it is precisely fulfilled and can be demonstrated through well-received human history. This is well-documented. So again, Daniel 8, 1 through 14 are the vision, the second vision of Daniel. And Daniel 8, 15 through 26 are the angelic interpretation of the vision. And Daniel 8, 27 is Daniel's reaction to it from which we can draw a strong application for ourselves. In the vision, we see the power and the danger of evil. We see the supreme and the ultimate power of God. This is Daniel's second vision. And there will be more to follow to clarify and underscore the warnings instructions, encouragements of the chapter. You get to the end of the chapter, it ends almost unsatisfyingly with Daniel going, I'm not sure I understand. But there are more chapters, more to come, and they will go over the same territory, adding detail. It's fascinating how this book is written. It came out of the hand of Daniel and the mind of God. So when compared to history, this chapter is like the rest of Daniel. It shows the supernatural character of God's word, the precision of its predictions. When God's word says something, it is going to happen, and it is going to happen precisely as God's word says it is. So God's word is written in an interesting way. I'm a storyteller, and often, you know, storytellers will say, once upon a time, long ago, in a faraway place, will be very vague. And a story could be anywhere, anytime. That is not the way the Bible is written. Even this chapter begins with, here's where it was, and here's when it was, and here are the people, and these are their names. Space and history. So here's a little synopsis. We're on pass number four, if you're counting. David read it. I used to explain it twice. Let me explain it a third time. Daniel has a vision of Persia. He sees the power of Medo-Persia like a ram. He sees an angry goat coming, that's Greece, we're going to see, and it displaces the ram in a powerful and violent way. He sees the rise of Alexander the Great. This is the big horn, we're going to see. He sees the end of Alexander and the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the little horn, 
Not to be confused with a little horn in chapter 7. We'll get to that. Little horn of chapter 8. Then he sees the defilement of the temple and its restoration, which is accounted in the intertestamental books and the story of Maccabees and Judah the Hammer, Maccabees and such, uh, Hanukkah, if you will. He sees the defilement of the temple and its restoration, including a time stamp of 2,300 days precisely. It's kind of amazing. It's amazing. Now, let me go through it another time. When, we're, we, you, we only have two more times. Okay, when you compare, uh, when, one of the uh, teaching methods is repetition. Am I right? T teaching method is, is repetition. When you compare the vision in 1 through 14 and the interpretation in 15 through 26, here's what you see. Again, Medo-Persia is the ram, rules the world after Babylon. Remember the nations in chapter 2 and then as, as the statue? And the nations following nations in chapter 7 as wild beasts. Now we're focusing in on two of them. That's what's happening. Greece will overcome Medo-Persia under Alexander. Alexander, the world, and the Jews. Um, you see, you can read this in Josephus, a Jewish historian. After Alexander, another ruler rises out of his four successors, whose name is Antiochus. And all Bible students agree to that. And he will persecute the people of God in a horrifying way. And he does. And then God has his days numbered. Evil is unspeakably evil, but it is limited. There you are. You should feel a sense of accomplishment because you've been through this now four times. And so when I say what I say as we go through a verse at a time, you should go, I understand this. I understand this. I've already been through it four times. So that was my technique. Sorry if I irritated you. Now, when I went to Moody Bible Institute, they, every single class said, this is Moody Bible Institute. That's what they would say. No matter what class you're in, this is Moody Bible Institute. Bible is our middle name, they would say. And then, no matter what class you're in, they would say, here at the Moody Bible Institute, we study the Bible and we use the inductive Bible study method. That's what they said in the fall of 1977 when I went there. Every single class, the English class, uh, Rosalind D. Rose said, this is Moody Bible Institute. Bible is in our middle name here at the B Moody Bible Institute. We study the Bible and we use the inductive Bible study method. That's what we're doing with Daniel chapter 8. Here's the inductive Bible study method is, number one, what does it say? Observation. What does it say? List all the observations you can. And there are a lot of them as you notice, as it was being read so swiftly, thank you, you were saving me time, saw what you're doing there. Um, it, all that detail, lots of things to observe, observation. Second was interpretation. Okay, what, I see what it says. What does that mean? Observation, interpretation. And then the third thing, and this is key, what does it mean to me? What does it say? Observation. What does it mean? Interpretation. Number three, what does it mean to me? Application. That's exactly what we're going to do today. This is the way the chapter is laid out. What does it say? Then, the, then we have an angel to interpret for us. And he's going to get the high points that he, Gabriel is named first angel named in the Bible. Only three angels are named in the Bible. Two good angels, Gabriel, Michael, the archangel. He appears in Daniel. This is significant. And he gives the interpretation. And then you can even... You can even draw from the way Daniel responds in that last verse, 
some really powerful applications that I think will set you on your way this week in, in a really helpful way. This is an amazing, this is an amazing, amazing book, and I, I can't believe that, that I, I get to teach it. So Daniel's second vision, what happened? Let's just start through there from verse 1, and you'll notice in the third year, uh, Belshazzar, two years after the last dream, he has uh, got the dream during the Babylonian Empire about the fall of an empire that was going to come and the fall of that empire to another empire. And the persons that were involved, Alexander Antiochus, amazing, gets a stream. Verse 1, third year, tears after the removed chapter 7. Notice again, they're not missed, their time and their place. It's not once upon a time long ago in a faraway place. It's specifically here and specifically then, and these are the specific people. And when critics have challenged this, the Bible ends up on top. They dig up the Nabonidus cuneiform and other things in history, and they discover that the, Bible, the Bible's history is verified over and over again in archaeology and other things. In verse 2 there, you, you notice it says that, um, again, verse 1, year, reign of Belshazzar, vision comes to Daniel. After that which appeared to me at the first, verse 2, I saw the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision the Ulai Canal. Now this is either Daniel was either there, or he was there in his vision. The Bible isn't precisely clear about that. Probably he was there in his vision. Shushan, called Susa by Greeks, was the chief city of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was about 250 miles east of Babylon, so modern, think modern Iran. Daniel sees this vision on this canal, Ulai, Verse 3, the ram pictures the Medo-Persian Empire. We know it because it's decoded later by uh, the, the angel Gabriel in verse 20 to 22. The king went to war. The Medo-Persian king, when he went to war, did not go to war with his crown. The Medo-Persian king in history and antiquity is known to go to war with a ram's head, interestingly enough. The Medo-Persians, often in their architecture, featured the ram's head. People of the time would recognize the symbolism of this, but we don't need to recognize the symbol because it's decoded in the immediate context. It's Medo-Persian Empire. The two horns stand for the twofold division, the Persians being stronger than the Medes, that horn was bigger. The Bible's very precise, you see, in what's going to happen. Verse 4, the empire conquers from east to west, from south to north, under, and this is what happened historically under Cyrus, and this is interesting. And that conquering was predicted by Isaiah 150 years earlier. The conquest of Cyrus and even the directions that he went, the way the Bible says it, was predicted earlier in the Bible. That's in, in verse 6. So, there, as I was considering, behold, the male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn. So, again, verse, verses so. Uh, verses of three and four, the ram is, who is this? According to the Bible, this is, this is the, that's okay, you'll catch up, the Medo-Persian Empire. The ram is the, and the Bible says so. It says it right here. And then the, the goat then, the male goat comes, and I had to look this up this week. I'm kind of a city sometimes. What's the difference between a ram and a goat? Did you ever think about that? They're kind of alike and kind of different. Anyway, that was interesting. I'll spare you that research. As I was considering, the male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground so swiftly. And the male goat, the king of Greece, 
after it's, being, after it's been persecuted by Medo-Persia repeatedly in history, it gets angry and then flies at Medo-Persia and wipes off as exactly the way it happened in history. Verse 5, we go to symbolic of Greece, decoded later in the chapter. Greece conquers quickly as if flying, featured a great note horn, a single powerful leader. The horn is symbolic of power in the Bible very clearly, but it says it. Again, it's decoded again. And the prophecy is true to history. We know this notable horn to be Alexander the Great, and he conquered with shocking speed. And if you're a history buff, this is fascinating reading, and it all dovetails with what the Bible says right here. And this is why Greece is called a leopard with four wings on its back in chapter 7, a symbolism of its quick and everyone in history recognizes how quickly, almost effortlessly, Alexander the Great and his armies conquered the known world. And then he was famously known as he wept because he had no more things to conquer. In truth, he actually did. He was on the cusp of India, and he, he ran, his, his troops ran out of motivation, and he realized he couldn't really go on and still keep them on board. So they go to tax the ram. Greece attacks Medo-Persia, verse 6. He came to the ram with the two horns, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with powerful wrath. I saw him, this is verse 7, I saw him close to the ram. He was enraged against him, struck the ram, broke his two horns, Medo-Persia, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground, trampled him down. There was no one that could rescue the ram from his power, a very precise historic description or symbolic description of the history of Greece overcoming Medo-Persia. Verse 8, pent up from years of the Medes and Persians harassing Greece, Alexander in a rage, his personal vendetta, and he um, defeats them. Verse 8, Greece grows very strong under Alexander the Great. There's a story in the histories of Josephus that while Alexander the Great was conquering cities, he would let them know ahead of time, and most of them would just immediately yield rather than be subjugated or to die or be enslaved or be abused. They would just immediately practically welcome him. And so that's how he swiftly, because of his violence, and he gets to Jerusalem, something unusual happened. He did something different in Jerusalem than he ever did anywhere else. And the people in Jerusalem responded to him in a different way. They brought, this is, this is unbelievable. They met him with the prophecy of, can you guess, Daniel. And the priest wisely dresses up, welcomes him, and says, he reads all of it except for his defeat. And Alexander spares the priest and spares Jerusalem. Later, the leader that comes after the four leaders that come after Alexander and the evil Antiochus Epiphanes treats Jerusalem in a different way altogether. And the text says that. But Alexander spares Jerusalem. He never did it before. To He never did it after that. That's in the record of Josephus. Very interesting. In verse 9, it says, this verse 8, the goat became exceeding great in Greece. He was strong. The great horn was broken. Alexander falls as quickly as he rises. And instead, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four horns of heaven. And so that, and, and I'll spare you all the detail, but the, in history, the kingdom of Alexander the Great, Greece, was divided in four leaders then vied for power, and they were broken up according to geographic uh, areas. One little horn rose up out of that. Bible scholars are unanimous in recognizing this leader as Antiochus Epiphanes. Here the plot thickens when we pay attention to the surrounding context of chapter 8. 
Don't read chapter 8 without thinking of what it says in chapter 7, what it's going to say in chapter 10, 11, especially, and 12. You have, it has to be seated in its immediate context where you get the full effect of it. This is super important. As we continue our study of the following chapters, what you're going to see clearly is Antiochus, in some mysterious way, prefigures the Antichrist of the end time. And he attacks the glorious land. This is what it says about the attack in verse in chapter 8. That he is a type of the Antichrist or a prefigure of the Antichrist isn't as clear in chapter 8, but it's explicit in chapter 7 and in chapter, uh, in chapter 11. Um, he, so this uh, land of Israel is called the glorious land three times in the context of coming after this, in the, in the rest of Daniel. So this is about the Antichrist. It's about Israel. It's about the eternal kingdom of Christ, which is brought to completion at the return of Christ. And I want to show you how, why I believe that. And it looks forward to a time of Christ's return. Uh, John Phillips and uh, Jerry Vine's written a really fascinating commentary with a lot of good stuff in it. And they said each of the remaining prophecies, though Jewish, foreshadows the coming the terrible emperor who will mercilessly persecute the Jewish people. Daniel's prophecies are preeminently prophecies of the Antichrist. In contrast with the prophecies of Isaiah, which are preeminently prophecies of the Christ. So his emphasis is going to be on recognizing this evil person who's going to rise up in the last day by showing near and incomplete fulfillments of the prophecy. There would be few and full and future fulfillments of the prophecy of this great evil ruler that's going to come. It's this sign that Jesus is going to return. Reginald Showers wrote this. Now, the section dealing with God's rule over the Gentiles completed, this would be chapters 1 through 8, right? Uh, through 7, the Aramaic. Daniel returns to using the Hebrew language. In light of the disturbing dream in the vision, Chapter 7, Daniel probably has, was wrestling with the following question. If three more Gentile kingdoms are going to be coming up to dominate the world after Babylon, what's going to happen to Israel during that time, that extensive period of time? This would be the natural question. What about what's going to happen to your people? What's going to happen to me if one pagan dynasty is going to follow another? Please tell us what can we expect to be natural, wouldn't it? Responding to the question, God gave Daniel revelations concerning the future of Israel. Daniel recorded these revelations in chapters 8 through 12. Since these chapters were concerned primarily with Israel, guess what language they were in? Hebrew. And so Daniel wrote them in the language of Israel. Bible students that, are, that, that see the prophecies of the Bible often call the nation of Israel, even today, God's super sign. Keep your eye on Israel. Isn't it interesting that if you turn your TV on almost every night, it, it's going to be focused on the Middle East. Now, today, Israel is the storm center of the world, according to the, you just watch the news. And that's because since Abraham, Israel has been the nerve center of the world. And that's because since Christ, Israel has been the truth center of the world. And that's because when Christ returns and he brings his kingdom, it will be the peace center of the world. And that's why for years it has been the center of attention for the whole world. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Why is Israel the center of attention for the whole world? Why is this little tiny nation, why do people fight over it so much? Why is there such hatred for Jewish people? You don't know the answer to that 
unless you find it in God's Word. And in God's Word, it is very plain. So Dwight Pentecost, a scholar of Bible prophecy, this the key to understanding chapter 7 through 12, Daniel's prophecy is to understand that Daniel is focusing his attention on one great ruler and his kingdom, which will arise in the end time. And while Daniel may use historical reference and other events which may be fulfilled, Daniel is thinking of them only to give us more details about the final form of the Gentile world power and its ruler who will reign on the earth. So Daniel chapter 8, we have another reference to this one. Daniel describes a king who's going to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. This is a historical event that took place several centuries after Daniel lived. So there's an individual that comes out of the Grecian Empire who's a great enemy of the nation of Israel. We know him as Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a ruler who sought to show his contempt for Palestine, the Jews, the Jewish religion, by going to the temple in Jerusalem which, and slaughtering a pig on the altar. This man is known as the one who desolated or the desolator. But this passage in Daniel 8 is speaking not only of Antiochus and his desolation, you know, the desecration of the temple, but it's looking forward to the great desolator who's to come if you place it in the context of chapter 7 and 11. If you take it out, it's not so apparent. When you see it together, it's clear that's what's happening. It's a little bit like this. Daniel is saying, I want you to recognize evil when it comes. And here are some examples of what that will look like. And this is personified by a person who's demon-possessed. Listen, do you ever watch what people do and think, what evil must possess them to do the things that they do? What evil thoughts must they have to rule the way they rule, to legislate the way they legislate, to believe what they believe? How could they possibly believe that kind of thing? Well, the Bible is the only book that really explains why people would have such a root of evil in them. And Daniel doesn't want us to miss it. That's why the rest of Daniel will repeat this to different people. See what happens when a person is small A antichrist? They are like big A antichrist, which the Bible talks about in the end. We got to get to Kraken. So verse 10, Antiochus persecutes the Jewish people called stars and hosts of heaven. So if you want to go through and tag things, the ram in verses 3 and 4 is Medo-Persia. The goat, verse 5, is Greece. The, the conspicuous horn, verse 5, is Alexander the Great. Are you tracking with me? The four conspicuous horns are the leaders that came up after him. And the little horn in this passage is Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a foreshadowing at least, if not a dual fulfillment of the Antichrist of the end time, and the host and the stars of heaven are common references to the people of God. Antiochus went and he attacked the people of God in a way that's unbelievable, unbelievably violent. We take a look at what we know from Maccabees and Josephus about Antiochus Epiphanes. He rose to leadership in Syria, one of the four divisions of the Grecian kingdom. He killed 80 to 100,000 Jews. He outfitted the temple in Jerusalem, God's holy temple with harlots. He forced priests to participate in athletic games naked. He outlawed circumcision and tortured and killed people who practiced it anyway. He forced the worship of Jupiter in the temple of God in a chilling crescendo of blasphemy. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. His reign of blasphemy and violence lasted in the 20, until 25th Kislev, 165 through 171, B.C., our December, he died of a putrid disease, and the temple was cleansed by 
Judas Maccabeus. I haven't a lot of time, but what a story that is. So there's a priest in a, in a small village north of Jerusalem during this time when the temple has been defiled and the worship of Jehovah has been interrupted. And this man is an old man and he's grieved. And he has a handful of sons, a large number of sons. And they come to sacrifice to Jupiter. And he, he says, no. This old man says, no. So somebody else volunteers, a Jewish man volunteers, I'll do it. He kills him and he kills the representatives of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he flees to the mountains with his sons, one of whom is a person you may have heard of, Judah. They call him the Hammer, Maccabeus. And they begin a series of guerrilla warfare against Antiochus Epiphanes. And they overthrow the powerful domination of Antiochus Epiphanes. And they do it in the exact amount of time the Bible says, but I'm getting ahead of myself. They do it in the exact amount of time the Bible says that Antiochus Epiphanes will will interrupt the worship of Jehovah in the temple. I would just say the Bible is not a book of bland generalities and stories. It's specific, not only history, but specific foretelling of prophecy in detail. And so you have this. Somebody said an old Jewish man one day, they were, somebody was talking to him about the Jewish people being persecuted. And, and he said, what they said to him, what do you think will happen if there's like another holocaust? He said, there will, be a, there will be another festival because every time the Jewish people have been persecuted, they come up with another festival. And this is where Hanukkah came from in the, in the legend of the lights in the, in the temple during the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes under the Maccabean revolt. It's an amazing story to read. It's extra biblical, but amazing story to read. But it's, but it's referred to here in, in this passage and so the host will be given, verse 12, over together with a regular burnt offering because of the transgression will throw truth to the ground and act and prosper. Verse 13, I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to the one who spoke, how long? That would be the question. Antiochus Epiphanes is just raping the country. And God's people are going, how long is this going to happen? How long will the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary, the host trampled underfoot? And he said, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. There will be a time limit on evil. It will be unspeakable evil. Listen, but there will be a time limit on evil. This is so true about what God says. You can expect evil, unspeakable evil, but God is in control, and he has set a limit on it. And his precise limit, this is exactly what happens. Now, we get to the interpretation in uh, verse uh, 14. By the way, in Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples come to him and talk to him about the end time. And what does Jesus do? One of the things Jesus does is he refers to Daniel, the prophet, and he quotes about the abomination of desolation. He quotes about that Jesus, talking about the end time, quotes this passage of Scripture. Another tie that this is more, it's certainly a historic reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's more than that because of the parallel between Antiochus Epiphanes and the coming Antichrist in Scripture, and Jesus, and it's in the context of that from chapter 7 and chapter 11 of Daniel, and Jesus refers to it the, when you see the abomination of desolation, Jesus himself refers to it in the Olivet Discourse when he's describing to his disciples the end time questions that they have. It's fascinating. 
And so the Maccabean revolt ends. Have you got the picture here? You can trust the details of the Bible. You can trust your life to the Bible. You can trust the Bible's history. You can trust the Bible's psychology, if you will. You can trust the Bible's ethics. If, if you are looking for something to give you confidence and boldness and understanding, trust God's Word. People that have trusted God's Word are people that have found joy, purpose, meaning, direction in life. If nothing else you should be able to see, you can trust God's Word. Now, the interpretation of the vision, what does it mean? We say, what does it say? And we did a little interpretation too. And we want to ask the question, what does it mean? Somebody said, matter of fact, in the Proverbs, you often see knowledge and understanding and wisdom. That's the, that's the inductive Bible study method. What does it say? Knowledge. What does it mean? Understanding. What should I do about it? Wisdom. Now, and by the way, all that in Proverbs is the, in the fear of the Lord comes knowledge and, and understanding and wisdom. So a person go to college and get an advanced degree, but if they don't know God and fear God, they're fools. And you can see examples of that on every major campus in America. But if you fear God, and then you add knowledge and understanding and wisdom in the fear of the Lord, then you'll be truly blessed. That's the way you build your life on the Bible. Now, verses 14, 15 and 16, Daniel's seeking meaning. Gabriel appears. First angel named in the Bible here, means a mighty one of God. There's a voice, by the way, let's not overlook it. There's a voice that's not identified here. It's kind of interesting. I'm sorry, let's just read. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that kind of an interesting, humorous understatement? You saw all these, you know, animals flying around in horns, and you're like, what was that? Isn't that you felt when you read it, like, what was that? Okay, this is, what in the world? Something, I, I, Daniel's like, I was trying to untangle that and understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand it. Some have said that voice may have been Christ. The Bible doesn't say. There's a voice. It says to Gabriel, help him understand. So, listen, if Gabriel shows up, it's kind of a big deal, right? When Gabriel shows up in the Bible, it's a big deal. And so, and it's usually associated with Christ. So, this is true here. So, he came near where I stood, verse 17, and when he came, I was frightened. Yeah, fell on my face. <laughs> what happens? When he said to me, understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of end. And again, at the end of verse 19, this is for the appointed time of the end. Now, it's certainly true that this is the end of the power of, of Greece. It's talking about Greece's dominion over the earth is now declining. It's certainly true about that. But when you see how often this is repeated in the rest of Daniel and how it's used, it has to mean something. It has to mean that and something more. Because often it's referring to, matter of fact, let's just do a little Bible survey. Look in, you, you've got there, Back up to chapter 7 and look at verse 26. Here's what it says. Uh, but the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then you have it again in chapter 8 and verse 17. You have it again in chapter 8 and verse 19. You have it again uh, in, let's see if I can find it again. Let's go forward to 
chapter 9 and verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off. Its end will come with a flood, and the end there shall be war. And chapter 11 and verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack. In chapter 12 and verse 4, Daniel shut up the word, seal the book till the time of the end. And verse 9, shut them up and seal it till the time of the end. We're the last words of Daniel. Verse 13, the allotted place and the end days. There's something going on here that's pointing to the end of Grecian dominance, but it's pointing beyond that too, to the, to the, to the time of the end that we would refer to as the inauguration of the kingdom of Jesus and the return of Christ. This is a fascinating thing that the Bible is talking about here. So he came near, he fell on his face. The angel says this refers to the end. The previous prophecies, there's a succession of four kingdoms. Listen to this carefully. In the previous prophecies in chapter 2 and chapter 7, remember there are a succession of four kingdoms. In the image, there are four kingdoms in succession. The last one being, we identified it as, as Rome. And in chapter 7, the same succession of four kingdoms symbolized by wild beast. We, we identified the last one is Rome. There's a sense of dual reference. The end period being described in the history of Medo-Persia and Greece, but there's a foreshadowing of a time in the distant future at the return of Christ. Antiochus is a type of foreshadowing of the end-time Antichrist. You could just see that by reading the language and looking at all the details and how similar that they are. And Daniel is in a trance in verse 18, and Gabriel wakes him up. There should be awe, there should be reverence, there should be mystery in the presence of holy things. No, no one should approach holy things with a cavalier, casual, this is what they have, verse 18. And in verse 19, he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to an appointed time of the end. I'm telling you what will happen at the end, the latter time of indignation. And, and most of us believe that this time of indignation isn't just isolated to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, but it is characteristic of the entire treatment of the Jews during the entire Gentile age is a time of extended indignation. And that explains what happens in the world to the Jewish people wherever they go. There is this persecution that's unspeakably uh, inexplicable. Why? Such because this of indignation. Verse 20, the ram with two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. We already mentioned that. Verse 21, the male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn is Alexander, obviously. Verse 22, the broken horn is the death of Alexander, and the four horns are the lesser kings that rise after his death. This is, we're going through the interpretation section. Verses 23 through 25, another king with a fierce countenance, fierce features, cruel, with sinister schemes, maybe even demonic Special demonic power, special demonic knowledge when transgressions reach their fullness implies that God's people, they're under Babylonian, they're under judgment, they're in Babylon because they disobeyed God. And there's an impl implication or statement here that there's transgressions have gone on and God is allowing pagans to rise up and judge the people of God because of their sin and because of their transgression. And so... Um, in verse uh, Antiochus prefigures the Antichrist, which we kind of overstated already, which is especially apparent when you take chapter 7, the little horn, chapter 11, verses 36 through 45, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. Antiochus then is either a type of the Antichrist or he's meant to remind you of the Antichrist. There's no question about that literature. That's the way the literature behaves. In verse 26, the vision is truth. Notice this. The vision of the evenings 
Oh, and I skipped over something kind of important. Verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. His own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and be broken, but by no human hand. Those the contemporaries would recognize the prince of princes as deity, as God. And we would recognize with a whole with the whole Bible in our lap, we would recognize the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Prince of Princes. Uh, you, you see, in, in Daniel in chapter 1, I think Jesus shows up as the sustenance, the food. In Daniel chapter 2, he definitely shows up as the stone that comes out of the mountain. In Daniel chapter 4, he shows up as the fourth man in the fire. In Daniel chapter 5, Jesus shows up in the mercy that out of the stump that's cut down. In Daniel in chapter 5, that's Daniel chapter 4, in the Belshazzar's feast, Jesus shows up in judgment as he shows up at the end of the world in the handwriting on the wall. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel himself is a type of Jesus being buried in the lion's den and the stone being rolled and then him coming out alive. In Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is very clearly identified as the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 8, I see him. He's the Prince of Peace. Can I get an amen from the people of God? Jesus is everywhere in this and should be everywhere in your life. The key figure in all of history. So Daniel's response to the vision. What does it mean to me? What did it mean to Daniel? He fainted. He was sick. He was astonished. He didn't fully understand. But he went about the king's business. And what he saw was horrific violence against the people of God that he loves. Horrific judgment against God's people. Grievous and sad things. Let me suggest to you before we go home, five, five responses that Daniel had that we should also have when we study something like this. Number one, we should, I made the point, we should trust the Word of God. We should build our lives on the Word of God. This is the key to hope and not despair. God has spoken. Trust Him. You're caring for an ill loved one, and it just feels like you don't have any more energy. God can be trusted while you're caring for an, a loved one that is ill. You're facing a frightening surgery. Get your Bible out and trust the God of the Bible. Your kids are not doing what you know would be best for them. Open up your Bible. Get down on your knees. Pray to the God of heaven. Do not ever doubt what he says. You say, I feel like I'm suffocating because I'm surrounded by such a great evil. It's almost like I'm surrounded by antichrist people. Well, there's a time limit on that. Trust what God's Word says. That's number one. Set your hope on the Bible. If you're a young person, build your life on that. If you're an old person, keep trusting that. Number two, be sober and be serious about what's happening in the world. You have to recognize that you have this extended description of details of evil. God is kindly telling us, don't expect, because I'm in control of the world, that I'm going to immediately banish all evil because I'm not. I'm going to use evil for my purposes. The Rome brutally takes over the world, but they build roads upon which the gospel goes to the world. Greece brutally takes over the world, but they spread a language of the Koine Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, which makes Christ known to the people. God is in control and doing things we can't see. And we should recognize that even with, when we're surrounded by evil and we're broken and grieved by evil, that we should be sober and serious because we know that God is still at work in the world even when evil is in the world. And number third, number three, we should recognize evil and reject it. 
Obviously, be on the right side of history is to be on God's side. Watch out for those who reject Israel or who replace Israel. Watch out for those who blaspheme God or mock God. Watch out for those who don't show reverence for God. Watch out for those with big egos, bigger than God. God is fully at work, even in times of profound evil, in spite of great evil. Number four, obey even when you don't fully understand. You got to love this phrase. This jumps out. So what did Daniel do? He was just overwhelmed, wasn't he? He was grieved. He's, look at what's going to happen to God's people. So many years of persecution and terrible bloodshed. And, this, and, and Daniel, because he was a godly man, that grieved him. And then what did he do? He went about the king's business. It allowed me to spiritualize, right? He went about the king's business. How can you not see? Like, get up. You say, I'm overwhelmed. I've got all these bad things happening. There's evil around me. Things aren't with me. Good. Now go about the king's business. Go back to work. Teach your class. See your patients. Build your stuff. Work in the factory. Empty the trash. Pay the bills. Pay the taxes. Go about the king's business with a new purpose, with a new, with a new verb, with a new drive, with a, with a spring in your step, because you are a child of a living God, and, and together with him, you will conquer, and you're part of that. You're part of the great movement of God against evil in our world. Even with the simple things that you do, Daniel went about the king's business. This is wonderful. Obey even when you fully don't. And he said he didn't understand. You obey even when you don't fully understand. And then number five, always be about the king's business. You're raising kids. And I talk to young mothers. I, I got four daughters, and three of them are young mothers. And I talk to them. And when you're a young mother, you, you know, it's amazing what women can accomplish. And Lois has always had stuff going on taught the kids to read, and then always had a business, and was just doing a lot of stuff, doing, doing, doing. Amazing, and ladies, what you can accomplish. Even while, but when you're raising little people, it's just overwhelming. It requires such amazing energy, and it can be so, so discouraging, and a diaper changing, and all of the same stuff over and over again. And maybe some of you men, maybe some of you women, you feel that way about your job. It just seems from mundane and repetitive and empty, but you need to see it the way God sees it as the king's business. Amen? You go about the king's business. I get up in the morning, I go serve the king. I just put stuff together. I put stuff together for the king. I don't just teach children. I teach children for the king. I mean, can you see what? Can you see how that would, your, your heart, you will often go off in this evil world with a very heavy heart and you will feel the weight of the fallen brokenness of this world but there's a time limit on it and Jesus is going to come back one day and he's bringing his kingdom with him great evil yes but God will prevail so there's a woman her name was Ashley Smith she had not done well raised in church walked away from the Lord got involved in things she shouldn't have been involved in including drug abuse and then after a while she couldn't get loose of the drugs she was wrestling with a drug addiction when a bad drug deal went down and her husband was killed and he died in her lap. Now she's a single mom and because she can't overcome the drug addiction, she loses her child. She's alone in her apartment one day, north of Atlanta. I think the year was 2005. She went out for a smoke and there was a man in the shadows 
who overpowered her and drug her into her apartment and tied her up. What she didn't know is this man had just broken free of the Fulton County court system and he killed four people, including shooting the judge at point blank range. And he so abused the woman that was guarding him that she had permanent brain damage and he killed a couple of other people. And now here was Ashley Smith in her apartment alone in the face of great evil. And she was a person who knew about Jesus but had not been walking with him. And she didn't know what to do. She offered him drugs. She had drugs left over from her own drug habit. He, he took some of the drugs. Then she said, can I read you the Bible? And she read him the Bible. Then she had a book by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven. Can you imagine a True story. You, you can't make stuff like this up. She had a copy of The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And she began, she said, can I read you? This is a good book. He said, go ahead. She read him The Purpose Driven Life. He says to her, what could my purpose in life be? She asked Nichols what he thought was the purpose of his gifts. And he said, maybe to talk to people and tell them about God. She made him pancakes for breakfast. He, she told him, I have an appointment to see my daughter. Would you please let me go? He let her go. She said, you need to turn yourself into the police. He called the police. He turned himself in. She's living for the Lord today. She's clear-eyed, and she's been living for the Lord for many years since then. She's walking with God. But the thing that turned her life around was she had to come face-to-face -face with an unspeakable evil and trust God in it. And he'll come and bless us, send us on our way with a blessing. What we do at Bethel is we have couples come. Please come if you're praying. Stand, stand together, and those that are praying, please come right now um, forward and stand right here. We, we have people that are always waiting here so that we can talk with you if you have any spiritual need. You like to set up counseling. We have counselors in our church. You like to know the Lord. You have something that's burdened you and you need somebody to pray with you. We have people who care about you here, lots of them. And uh, when we're dismissed with a blessing, you can come this way if you like.